For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown, and thank you for tuning in to the 48th episode of Working with the Word. We are in John chapter 3 today, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and there is so much rich depth here that we're going to keep this intro short. There's a lot we're going to talk about today. And so let's just begin by reading the text. This is John chapter 3 from the Christian Standard Bible. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and what we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Aeon near Salem, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, and who was with you across the Jordan, is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, who stands by and listens for him, rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. 
so this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For if the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So something we talked about way long ago in 2021 was an idea of wanting to do a series of episodes based on helpful questions we can ask as we're reading and studying together. Um, That's kind of fallen to the back burner. We're not really looking to do a whole on series or making that a prominent point, but we have thought at times to times maybe we could try to do some of that in some of our John episodes. And we thought that this encounter with Nicodemus especially be a great place to start to think about trying to profile Nicodemus and look at this situation, try to ask some of those questions that can be helpful. So we'll be breaking down this episode into two main sections as far as text in chapter 3, verse 1 through 21, and then chapter 3, verse 22 through verse 36. But let's start off with this first section and talking about Nicodemus in this section where he comes to Jesus. So really we're just going to think about those main journalistic questions. You know those the W's actually for today. We're not really going to get into the how, but the who, what, when, where, why. Let's focus on those. So who is Nicodemus? What do we know about him from the text? Yeah, so verse 1 tells us that there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So we know that he's he belongs to the party of the Pharisees. He's also a ruler of the Jews, so he's very prominent in the Jewish culture and in the religion. Later on, Jesus calls him a teacher of Israel, and so he seems like he's a very important guy in the in the Jewish establishment. And I think that that kind of factors into the conversation because Nicodemus, it seems, has a lot to lose if he chooses to follow Jesus based upon what the rest of the Jewish establishment thinks about Jesus. Yeah, we always give the Pharisees a hard rap. Granted, Jesus regularly gives the Pharisees a hard rap. But I think sometimes we get this impression that all the Pharisees were just completely against Jesus from the moment he came out of the womb. And that's not really the sense. There are some who are genuinely curious or interested Mm -hmm. in what Jesus is doing, like Nicodemus shows us here. Our next journalistic question would be, where are they? From what we learned in the previous chapter... Jesus has been in Jerusalem. There's no indication that he's left Jerusalem during the Passover feast, so they're still located together in that time. That maybe reminds us then that Jesus has done something very public at the end of chapter 2, something that would draw a lot of attention to him. And so when is it that Nicodemus comes to Jesus? Well, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, it says, at night there in verse 2. Now, two main thoughts about that. One popular idea is that Nicodemus was afraid to be seen or recognized. We'll see later on throughout the Gospel of John people talking about Jesus, but they're very careful to do so around the other religious leaders because they're worried about being thrown out of the temple. But the other side of that might be because, again, since Jesus has done something so public, Nicodemus is just wanting some one-on-one time. You know, all the other people are crowding Jesus and asking him questions, and they're confused about what he's done. Let's just say, okay, I just want to talk to you one-on-one. I want to get to know you better. So we don't know exactly. Doesn't John doesn't tell us 
why the motivations is there with that, but we can see it's getting one of those two ideas. Yeah, and it's interesting, and, and I don't know if this is a connection or not, but in the conversation, Jesus talks about light and dark to Nicodemus. Anyone who hates the light stays in the darkness is basically the idea and doesn't come into the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Jesus is addressing Nicodemus's motives there or not, and coming at night, but it is just kind of an interesting that they have that conversation at night. That's true. They do talk about that big emphasis of light that's brought up throughout the gospel. So there's also the question of what, which is somewhat of an easy question to see. What does he say? I mean, you just look for the parts that aren't in red if you have a red-letter Bible, right? And that's what Nicodemus says. But really want to just start off with that main idea, and Emerson will roll with this, I think, a bit more in our first section we break down in just a little bit. But he comes and says some pretty amazing things about Jesus. He says, We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. He doesn't come, again, like we might expect some of the other Pharisees, what we know or maybe think about Pharisees from our other gospel interactions or what we're familiar with in the Bible, if we know something about the Pharisees, we might expect them to say something like, Jesus, you hypocrite, or Jesus, you blasphemer, or something. He comes up and he makes this great proclamation. You've come from God, and it seems like he wants to know more about that. And that really gets to the final question of why. Why is Nicodemus here? Yeah, it seems to me that he's, as you mentioned, he's friendly to Jesus. He's not hostile. He doesn't come accusing him or wanting to run him out of town or anything. It seems to me that he's friendly and he's curious. Maybe he's seeking answers. He's seeking a a deeper understanding uh, about Jesus. It does seem like from the end of chapter 2, and I think there is kind of a flow here at the end of chapter 2, Jesus is talking about or, or John mentions how Jesus did not entrust himself because he knew all men and he did not need anyone to testify about man. We talked about at the end of last episode about how people had shallow faith in Jesus. And right after that, we're introduced to Nicodemus. It could be that Nicodemus was one of those people that had just kind of a superficial understanding of who Jesus was. But you have to give Nicodemus some credit that he came to Jesus. He talked to him personally one-on-one. And I'll just mention this as well, that Nicodemus is going to come up two other times in the gospel of John. And in each of those times, it seems like he's kind of progressing in his faith, coming to better understand who Jesus was, defending him, even even present at Jesus's burial. And so we got to factor that into Nicodemus as well. But he's an interesting character, seeing him unfold, his progression of faith unfold through the gospel. Yeah, it's definitely worth taking some time to... Again, try to profile him, to ask some of these questions, hopefully to try to get to understand him a little bit better, because he's not just a, a one-and-done guy. He might be somebody that we could relate to after spending some time looking at and asking some of those questions. So again, while we're not going to make this a huge deal regularly about giving you specific examples of questions, those are examples of some things at least that as you're reading and studying and you're kind of thinking, well, how can I do more than just read the text once and observe it. If I am trying to to dig on ground level, or if I'm trying to you know do the earth level or ground level observation, those are some examples of some things you can ask about people or situations that could be helpful for your study. So let's move into this first section where we have Jesus and Nicodemus's conversation, verses 1 through 21. Emerson, what were your first observations here? I think what stands out to me is how dense (laughs) this conversation is. 
when we were, when you and I were kind of working through this chapter together, preparing for this episode, we, we were just, you know, there was so much rich stuff here to talk about. Uh, and, and this one conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, I kind of relate to Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus is like, I'm, I'm not sure I understand what you're talking about, Jesus. And, and Jesus is talking about some, some difficult things here. He's talking about spiritual things, abstract things. So that's one of the things I noticed. How about you? Yeah, I think similar to that, I noticed that I wanted to make sure you had this section and not me. The, <laughs> as we've used that phrase about abstract, John being a little bit more abstract than some of the other Gospels, you see some of that as Jesus is talking about birth, he's talking about water, or he's talking about spirit and wind, and he's talking about all these things in these first 13 verses. But as you move through the chapter, you can at least see the main point, and hopefully through continued observation through continued study, we'll see some of those important points that Jesus makes in the first section, as well as we see this dense section. Yeah, so let's start with a very familiar verse in this chapter, and that's verse 16. The Christian Standard Bible, of course, reads a little bit differently than maybe the traditional translation. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So as we dive into Jesus's conversation here, I want to focus on that idea of eternal life because I think that's really what all of this conversation boils down to. Jesus came, we, we see from very early on in John chapter one, that Jesus came to bring life, not physical life, not now life because we have that already, but he came to, came to bring us eternal life. And so as he's talking to Nicodemus, what he's talking about is how we receive that eternal life, that, that gift of eternal life. And so, you know, right out of the gate, Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think one of the difficulties of this chapter is it seems like so abrupt of Jesus to start that way, right? Nicodemus has come and said, okay, you're a good teacher from God. You're doing all these signs. And Jesus, it seemed like just makes this logical jump to being to talking about being born again. But Jesus knows Nicodemus's heart. Jesus knows what he needs to understand and what he needs to do. And so when Jesus says you need to be born again, there's an interesting level of how we understand that. So the word that's translated born again can also be translated born from above. And I think both of those are accurate translations. The same word is used in verse 31 when it says, speaking of Jesus, the one who comes from above is above all. That phrase from above comes from from the very same word born again in, in verse 3. And so the point I'm making is that Jesus is not just talking about a rebirth. He's talking about a specific kind of birth. It's a birth that's conditioned upon belief in Jesus. In John chapter 1, in verse 12, John tells us that to all who received him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And so Jesus is saying to Nicodemus that in order for you to see the kingdom of God, You've got to become a child of God. You've got to become a son of God. And you've got to do that based upon faith in Jesus. This is a 
rebirth from above that results in us becoming children of God with new life by God's grace. And so, will Nicodemus see who Jesus is? I think that's the question. That he's not just a good teacher. I mean, he's friendly to Jesus. He accepts some of what Jesus is saying and what he's doing as he's seeing these signs. But Jesus is much more than a good teacher and a miracle worker. He's the very divine son of God. And if he's not willing to accept that, then he can't have this eternal life. He can't be born from above or born again. And so I think that's what Jesus is kind of pushing him to do. So Nicodemus doesn't understand all of that. Verse four, (laughs) how can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? So I think Nicodemus is probably thinking kind of on a literal level here. Uh, He takes Jesus saying born again to be talking. Okay, certainly you're not talking about going back into my mother's womb. Jesus says, no, I'm not. (laughs) Very plainly, I'm talking about a spiritual birth. So he says in verse five, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's, there's two elements here. There's water and spirit. And I think Jesus is talking about one thing, not two things. He's not talking about a water birth and then a like Holy Spirit baptism or something like that. I think he's talking about one thing. Yeah. And he later on says to Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? And so it's kind of a mild rebuke, isn't it? You know, you are a teacher of the law, and so you should know these kinds, you should be prepared at least for these kinds of things. And so it seems to me that what Jesus is talking about should it be should at least be hinted of in the Old Testament. And that's exactly what we find in, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 36, when God is talking to his people, they've gone into captivity or are about to go into captivity. But he's also kind of telescoping after the captivity about how he's going to purify them, how he's going to bring them back into this covenant relationship. This is what he says. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I will give to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. So just really quick summary of that. God says, I'm going to purify my people. And I'm going to do that by water which is a common element that God uses in the Bible to purify, to renew, to give life. He's going to give them a new heart, kind of this idea of of a repentance. He's going to give them his spirit. And the result of all of that is that they're going to have life. And I think that's the background to what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You see the water and the spirit, both of those being pulled together, resulting in having this eternal life. I think a big question that we have to address when we talk about this passage is, is Jesus talking about baptism when he's talking about being born of water and the Spirit? And I think the answer to that is, yes, he is. He is talking about baptism here, but I think there's a lot more than just talking about being dunked underwater. 
there's a lot more that's described here. Jesus is kind of giving Nicodemus a whole picture of what it means to come to Jesus. He's talking about the humble recognition of who Jesus is, repentance, this kind of change of our heart and mind and thinking, and that whenever we do that, when we come to him in obedience, as we see in the book of Acts, you see people being baptized immediately after believing in him to have their sins forgiven, God gives us his spirit, not in some like miraculous or dramatic way, but but he gives us the spirit that gives us life. It adopts us into his family, and that spirit uh, brings us into the kingdom of God. And, and not to jump too much out of John, but in, in Titus chapter 3, I think there's a passage that kind of puts in, in Paul's words what Jesus is describing here. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So Nicodemus needs to understand that in order to have this life, He's going to have to recognize who Jesus is, that he has come to offer life and grace, and that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And without that, without this willingness to accept Jesus' terms and for who he is, and that he's going to be lifted up, he can't have this life. There's a lot more we could talk about with that, but hopefully that kind of gives a good, maybe a good starting point for you to dig deeper into what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Absolutely. Yeah, there's just so much stuff in there, but I think you've helped us see a lot of the the very important and clear points to understand the purpose of this conversation and what this conversation is doing. And like you ended off with there, Jesus goes on to talk about the Son of Man a little bit more in the last few verses of this conversation. In verse 14, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Sometimes we talk about John being the gospel for all people, you know, Matthew is the gospel for the Jews, and Luke is the gospel for the Gentiles, and blah, blah, blah. But there's obviously going to be a need to hopefully have some type of Old Testament background. And it, I guess even if you don't have that, we want to remind ourselves of some things Jerome said that there might be some questions you have, and you're like, what's that talk? What did Moses lift up a snake? Then you have to go back and find that later. Let's talk about that briefly, though. In Numbers 21 and verses 4 through 9, there's a time that people of Israel were in the wilderness and they rebelled against God, questioning his trustworthiness and basically just spitting in the face of his grace and all the ways he's provided for them. So God rightfully punishes these people and sends these serpents that if they bite them, they're going to be, they're going to eventually die from that. I think some versions call it fiery serpents or you know, if that's something just related to their venom, if they were actually made of fire. I don't know. I wasn't there, but it led to some people were dying from this. That's the, the important the seriousness of what's going on here and people rebelling against God. And so to save people from death, Moses intercedes for the people. He acts as this mediator, as Moses often does for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So God has Moses put this bronze serpent up on a pole, and those who look at the snake that's been lifted up on the pole will be saved from dying. If you've ever Google imaged Numbers 21 and you Google search the bronze snake, something I did not long ago for a Bible survey class, 
I never really noticed or thought about this before. I always just kind of thought of like a vertical pole and like a snake wrapped around. Some artists rendition that it looks more like a T, uh, more like a cross. I don't know how they come to those conclusions. Maybe they know more archaeologically than I do. Maybe it's meant to help parallel what Jesus is talking about here. When he says, just as the snake was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And Jesus is regularly going to talk about this idea of him being lifted up in John 8, 28, and John 12, 32 through 34, talking about his time on the cross, and that being basically his hour, why he's come, that he's going to go to this cross. And he's going to move on, though, from that. Let's move from that analogy for the time being to what some things Jesus says in verse 15. Whoever believes will have eternal life. And that kind of becomes the big theme for the rest of this conversation. People who believe in Jesus will have eternal life. Verse 16 very famously states that. It's worded a little bit differently in the Christian Standard Bible, like Emerson said. That was something that when we first read this, you know, helps us to be pulled out of our familiar texts like the New King James or the ESV for me, and to see it put in a different way, but to still see the main point of all of that. He's going to go on in verse 17 to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but basically to save the world. If God wanted to condemn people, he didn't need to send Jesus. That would just happen because of people living in their sin and rebelling against him. God was not playing some type of big gotcha plan on mankind by sending He's not just sending Jesus just so he can get us and send us to hell. That would have happened without Jesus coming. Remember, God's plan, it might sound familiar if you said it something like this, God's plan was to reconcile sinners to himself through the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. I had to remind myself of that plan and, and go back and see it from our whole story series, but God's plan has always been about saving people, and he's doing that through Jesus. Now, verse 19 says something significant about this in this conversation, that those who are going to stand against God's plan he says in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Some people don't want the eternal life. It may not be that they don't want the eternal life, but they're refusing to repent or to come out of their sins, to come out of the darkness in order to find that true light. Again, maybe that's something of kind of a, a jab at Nicodemus here and getting him to prod or think about that actual moment. Maybe it's just more of the illustration that's going to continue to be used that Jesus is the light of the world. If people refuse to come to the light, then they're going to remain in their sins, and they'll be judged as being in their sins, and they will be condemned because they refuse to believe in the name of the one and only Son. But those who do come to the light, who walk by lives of truth, kind of paraphrasing verse 21, are those who will see the works of God being accomplished, that they will find that salvation. They will find that God's going to accomplish his plan of salvation in them because they come to the light in Jesus. And I think it's helpful, you know, when you when you think about John 3.16, that, that's a verse that everybody knows, right? Everybody can quote it. But a lot of times we don't realize where it comes from and what's going on. Like, like what what is the context of that passage? And it's really helpful to see what is said there in context of everything else that, that you've just described with the serpent and the judgment. Because, yeah, God loved the world. And, and by doing that, by sending Jesus, he showed that he, he wants us to come to him. But that doesn't nullify God's judgment either. The reality that he is going to judge those who do not, I mean, even the verse itself says so that those who believe will not perish. The mm -hmm. implication is that those that do not believe will perish because they don't come to the life or to the light. And, you know, 
looking at John 3.16 in its context, I think, is really important. Absolutely. This conversation, I think, shows us something that we don't see as much of in the other gospel accounts. Sometimes we can really parcel down on, like, you know, the gospels are the same, but here's all the ways that they're different, and it can be helpful to know those things, like like we talked about a second ago, of John is the gospel for all, and uh you know, Matthew's the gospel for the Jews, or this is the aspect of Jesus each gospel writer focuses on. But one thing that John does do is he really focuses on intimate conversations. He focuses not on Jesus doing lots of big parables or, you know, mass teaching so much. I mean, there are big public moments, and Jesus does speak to large crowds of people at time. I think about John 6, or even as Jesus is speaking to a group of people there in John chapter 2. But Here's one guy. Here's Nick. And he's just having a conversation with Nick here. And then the next chapter, it's Jesus and this Samaritan woman. And it's largely Jesus talking to his disciples. Like the last half of the book is almost exclusively a conversation that Jesus has with 12 other men, or really 11 other men after Judas leaves. And he's focusing on just those small moments. And that's not to say that It's a superior gospel because of that. It's just something to notice that as Jesus has these conversations, as John is presenting Jesus' teaching in maybe a different way, not different as if it's new revelation, but as Jesus is teaching in this way, what do we learn from these intimate conversations that Jesus has with Nicodemus? I think one of the main things we can take away is that Jesus wants us to believe in him, to understand that he really is from God, like Emerson talked about. I'm going in our notes a second ago. He wants Nicodemus to see who Jesus really is. That's what Jesus wants you and me to see as well. So we need to continue to move forward. Let's leave this conversation behind and maybe extend this episode a little bit longer than some of our others. We're already about the 30-minute mark in our recording time. This latter section, verse 22 through verse 36. Emerson, what was something you noticed that stood out to you as we observed this section? I think one of the big things for me is how John is, is very humble and how he's talking about uh, putting the spotlight on Jesus. I mean, the the issue comes up that, you know, John's disciples basically tattle on Jesus. Hey, don't you realize <laughs> that Jesus is making more disciples than you now? And John basically says, I'm okay with that, because that's exactly how it's supposed to happen. Yeah. So I think there's a big lesson to be learned from, from John's, John the Baptist's humility here. Absolutely. I can't read this section without getting excited about verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. All right, let's 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 get into this section just a little bit. Really, Emerson and I have covered most of what we want to say about verse 22 through verse 30. You know, Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the Judean countryside. Here, John's given us a detail that we've moved out of Jerusalem. We're now in the Judean countryside, and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. John has also continued to baptize people as well. And some people come out to John. It says in verse 26, they came to John and told him, Rabbi, the one who testified about, you testified about, and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. And like you mentioned, I kind of like that that image of they're tattling on Jesus, basically. And everyone's going to him. Are they coming out of concern for John? Are they coming with a desire to taunt him or tease him? Are they tattling on Jesus because they don't like Jesus? I don't know. They've they've just let John know that Jesus is getting more attention. The spotlight is shifting to him. And John's response is basically, good. That's what's supposed to happen, right? Mm -hmm. One source I just saw a little bit ago is we were getting ready for this, and I was doing some extra reading. So something about the fact that the lamp is starting to go down because the light has come. 
I mean, I think that's some of the idea of what we see from the prologue is the light is talked about earlier, and I don't remember if John was ever specifically referred to as a lamp, but you have that idea. The lamp is a lesser form of the true light itself, and so the lamp is like, okay, I'm I'm done. My purpose has been served. Jesus is here, so there's no reason for me to continue to be a focus or a main point like this. It's the point to go on to him, and like we said, he must increase, but I must decrease. There's just like you mentioned, the humility, the the illustration of I'm just the best man. Th- this day is all about the bride and the groom, and the groom is here. Nobody cares about the best man. You know, on my wedding day, I loved my best man, and he he's a great friend of mine, but it's not about him that day. I hope no, there's not, like, people taking pictures of him. People should be taking pictures of my wife, and I'm also kind of next to her too. But if they're going to be <laughs> choosing some guy to focus on on a wedding day, I should be the guy to get the attention as the groom. And John says... I'm not the focus. Jesus is that focus. So with that statement of he must increase, I must decrease, we'll talk about that a little bit more here. John is obviously a little bit different than you and I, maybe a lot different than you and I, and the fact that what he's saying there is much more specific to Jesus' work and John's work in that. But even you and I have a sense to talk about that statement and think about that statement as well and the fact that we must let Jesus increase in our lives and we must pull back our own desires and passions and let Jesus take control. And this final few verses, verse 31 through 36, some translations will leave a note that says something like, sometimes the quotation goes to the end of the chapter in the Christian Standard Bible, I think in the English Standard Bible, I think in the New American Standard as well. The quotation ends in verse 30. And so you have just this information that's left by John here and this idea of it's talking about the one who comes from above. Really, this section seems to very well parallel everything that Jesus has already said to Nicodemus. The idea of eternal life is so prevalent in here. People are going to find life in Jesus. Talking about the one who comes from above, Emerson already has pointed out the similarities to that statement of being born again in verse 3 with the similar uses of the Greek word there. And I think, really, again, the whole focus is that all that Jesus has done, all that Jesus will do, all that Jesus is doing, even now today, as we're speaking and recording, Jesus is still at work, Jesus is still doing things, is according to the plans of God, and it's all to his purpose and his will. But that really leads us to the the big conclusion here in verse 36. Yeah, that, and, you know, what what's the takeaway from both of these conversations, Jesus and Nicodemus, and what John says about Jesus, or what John the Baptist says about Jesus kind of being put in the spotlight. What's the big takeaway? What's the so what? Verse 36 gives us a very clear so what. How does this affect me? Why does this matter? Verse 36 says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Think about what the stakes are in all of this that we've said. The eternal life is found with Jesus versus experiencing eternal wrath from God. And all of that hinges upon our belief and our obedience to the Son of God. This idea of believing in the Son is parallel. It's in the Christian Standard Bible, it's paralleled with rejecting the Son. Other translations, it's parallel with obeying the Son or disobeying the Son. Those two contrasting ideas. Will we believe in Him 
or will we reject him and not obey him? And the stakes are high, eternal life versus eternal wrath. That should, that should be humbling to us. You know, what's my response to Jesus? Jesus is not just talking to Nicodemus about what he needs to do to save the kingdom of God. He's talking to, to me about what I must do to see the kingdom of God and to become a child of God. So our challenge, as we're wanting to something to do with this, we understand the so what, we see some of the main points here. We've tried to pick challenges that are coming from the text itself, maybe a question that Jesus asks, a statement that Jesus makes. Today's challenge is actually a statement of John the Baptist. But again, that phrase there in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Obviously, we're not going around baptizing people and speaking the word of God the same way John was. We can use that idea and think, in what area do I need to let Jesus increase control and allow myself to decrease? There's a song we sometimes sing, uh, maybe you're familiar with the hymn, None of Self and All of Thee. You can maybe find that hymn online, or if you've got a songbook, try to find that hymn. That's a, a great mental thought and something to really ponder, this idea of a person's journey, of it all being about me, about myself. I'm saying that conversion is not just getting wet and then coming up and then drying off. It's about a new life being formed into a new way, really coming to realize that it's not about myself, but giving up myself and letting Jesus be the one who is my Lord and my Savior. So ponder that question, reflect on that question this week, that idea of how can I let Jesus increase and myself decrease. We'd like to say a special thank you for listening today. We've been doing this a year now, and Jeff and I would just like to say thanks to all who have supported us in so many different ways, especially our family and our friends and the congregations that we're working with. And of course, a special thanks to you, our listeners. Whether you've been following us through this year or this is your first episode tuning in, we cannot thank you enough for joining us in this journey. If you like what you're hearing, you can help us out by rating us or leaving us a review or by sharing this with someone else. As always, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.